Hi, I'm Kelly Cervantes, and this is Seizing Life, a bi-weekly podcast produced by Cure Epilepsy. Today on Seizing Life, we continue our series detailing the drug development process by taking a deeper look into the human trial phase of the process. I'm happy to welcome Dr. Darcy Kruger to the podcast. Dr. Kruger is a pediatric neurologist, director of the Tuberous Sclerosis Clinic, and associate professor of clinical pediatrics and neurology at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. He also serves on the TS Alliance Professional Advisory Board, and he's joining us today to discuss the importance of participating in clinical trials and provide insight about what patients should expect from a trial, what might be expected of them, and what questions they should ask prior to participating in a trial. Dr. Kruger, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I'm really excited about this topic. It's it's such a a nice culmination um, of our last two topics to bring us to this part of patient participation in clinical studies, which I know is something that you are uh, very passionate about. And I'm curious why you're so passionate about it and why you are an advocate for trying to get epilepsy patients um, into trials. Yes, uh, thanks for having me uh, onto this uh, presentation and, and platform. And, and it's an excellent question. I, it comes from my desire to help patients. And we can do all the scientific investigation in the world about wonderful treatment possibilities, new mechanisms that might help treat epilepsy when, when previous strategies are, are falling short of our desire. Um, and if we can't get through clinical trials, then we never get approvals. And so these medications never get into patients' hands. So that is probably my number one passion and driving force for supporting clinical trials. Uh, even if the science is there, we need the medications to get to the patients. And this is an essential step. Brilliant. And so we've, in previous episodes, sort of learned about the different phases that the trials go through. But before you can even get into, you know, a phase one, two, three, four trial, you have to be accepted into the trial. So what does that process look like? How can people even find out where, uh, where to find out what trials are occurring? There are uh, probably a couple different pathways for people to find out about clinical trials if they're interested in 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 participating. Uh, the first is a clearinghouse that's maintained on the internet by the government. Um, it's called clinicaltrials.gov. Uh, and this is a place where any federally funded research and many industry clinical trials that are seeking to be approved by the FDA are required to post basic information about their study. Uh, it will have the study name. It will have the the medical conditions for which they are studying this treatment for. It will have information about if there's age restrictions or other medical requirements. Uh, they will often list uh, several of the primary ones of this, and they list about uh, what the treatment is that they're testing and. Uh, what they hope to measure with this treatment. Another example, uh, is it trying to just gather safety data or is it gathering uh, whether the drug works in addition to additional safety data? All of this is on there. And then ultimately it has the information of, about who's doing the trial, who's paying for the trial, 
and who you can contact, both email or phone number, in order to learn more about the study. That is probably the most authoritative and reliable place to go. The second place is your uh, uh, medical providers that you trust. Um, this might be your primary care provider. It may be one of the specialists that you travel to to receive specialty care. Asking them if they're aware of any clinical trials or opportunities uh, for studies to participate in. Sometimes those individuals will be up to date on what the newest uh, trials are available for your, your diagnosis and particularly for epilepsy. Um, and certainly if you're going to a, a level four epilepsy center, a center that is used to uh, participating in the latest clinical trials and participating in specialty meetings for epilepsy, uh, many times these individuals are very knowledgeable about clinical trials that are available that uh, for which you might be interested and eligible for. The last uh, I wouldn't discount in any way, shape, or form is through the internet. Um, particularly, there's Facebook groups that uh, many individuals who share the same diagnosis uh, are able to communicate back and forth about what they've heard or what their experience has been in a clinical trial. And this is uh, certainly a useful place to find out about information trial, but I would not consider it as authoritative to know all of the uh, requirements and eligibility and, and procedures associated with that study. You would still want to find out from either clinicaltrials.gov or contacting a site that's participating in the study to get the official information. But it's often a good place to hear about trials that, that could be of interest. Okay, so a patient knows now where to go to find the trials. So let's say they have now found one that um, they think that they would be a quality candidate for. What are the questions that they should be asking the investigator before agreeing to participate? I think the, the, the first question is, is to find out or just verify, is, is there anything major that, that you should be aware of that would make it uh, uh, that you don't... Uh, qualify for the study. So, so upfront information about eligibility. There'll be more details later to confirm that, uh, but it's important to find out upfront before you get too far down the pathway, um, whether there's any major uh, things that could have uh, indicated whether or not uh, the conversation needs to go forward. After that, I would ask about uh, how often uh, you're going to need to be uh, at study visits and whether those study visits need to happen in person in a particular place, uh, because there may be travel involved. Uh, and if there's frequent visits and the distance is, is, is far, that needs to be calculated into your enthusiasm and availability to participate in a specific study. The, the other thing is to ask about, well, okay, when I do come to study visits, what do, what does I or my child have to do? Uh, there may be blood tests, there may be electroencephalography or EEG tests, there may be other study procedures that have to be done, and you want to have a general sense of how much is going to be asked of you or your child during the study. And then finally, I, I find it useful at least to start, if, if the family doesn't already have understanding about what the trial is about, I like to tell them about, is it a safety trial? Is it an efficacy trial? And what is the reason why we think the trial is important to be done at this time? And so what are our goals of the trial? I think that's very helpful to make sure that everybody is, is, is fully engaged in what, we're, what the trial's purposes are. Hi, this is Brandon from Cure Epilepsy. An estimated 3.4 million Americans and 65 million people worldwide currently live with epilepsy. For more than 20 years, Cure Epilepsy has funded cutting-edge, patient-focused research. Learn what you can do to support epilepsy research by going to cureepilepsy.org.
Now back to seizing life. So now I want to go back to sort of the legal and the consent and all those aspects of of agreeing to participate in a trial. So we have the questions answered. We know that we're a good candidate, but what do we need to watch out for on the consent side? So the consent is a process that has been worked out now extending decades to make sure that all research that is done with patients is done in an ethical way and done in a safe way. And so the consent is the legal aspect that we make sure that 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 is indeed uh, the, the case. So uh, there are uh, key things on every consent form. Number one is who is doing the study and who's paying for it so that, that we can know that there's, if there's any potential biases or other reasons why the trial may not be as clear or straightforward, uh, that, that, that anybody participating knows who's behind it. The second thing is, is what to do um, if anything is unclear or seems to be uh, done in a way that is not consistent with what was explained to you as far as studying the trial. So there's always uh, numbers to call and people to contact to that uh, are either involved in the study, if it has to do with something occurring during the study itself, um, or even outside the study so that they're independent regulators and overseers that you can contact and talk to if there's concerns there. The third thing uh, that's in any trial is has to explain in very plain language. So this is not really convoluted language that is allowed to be inserted into these agreements um, about what is expected of you and what is being expected of the team that's conducting the trial. Who covers what? What is paid for? What is not paid for? Uh, if you have something go wrong, what is to be done? Um, what are the reasons why you uh, could be exited from the study even if you didn't want to be? Um, those should all be spelled out very clearly, uh, as well as those uh, earlier things I talked about as far as knowing how often, what's involved, and what is the purpose of the study. That's all outlined in a consent. The other thing about a consent is, is to make sure that nothing seems coercive. Uh, it has to be total voluntary on both the part of the investigator and the participant that this that the participation is voluntary and and that has to be witnessed uh, so that uh, this the, that this document can also be uh, reviewed as being officially saying yes I want to be in this trial and I understand what is known and what is not known and I'm still okay with it now if there are any concerns regarding this legal document I imagine that there is an organization that oversees this sort of thing. Who, what is that? What is that organizing body? Yeah. So every human study has to be reviewed by what we call an institute, institutional review board or IRB. Outside the United States, they may be called an ethics board, uh, but it's the same same body. And these are certified, uh, in the case of the United States, they are certified by the Food and Drug Administration to uh, act in this capacity on their behalf. And the rules are very uh, uh, clear on what, who makes up this, this body and what their responsibilities are. And so before we can enroll a single patient into any clinical trial, uh, the IRB has to determine whether or not this study can move forward uh, according to the rules that the FDA has outlined. In addition, we are required to report back to them under circumstances if there's unexpected events in the study, we have to report back to the IRB when they happen. And every year that a study is ongoing, we have to give them a full update every year of the progress of the study uh, as it pertains to its objectives, its enrollment, and any unexpected findings. I know that there are research studies that aren't always focused on a new treatment. 
Can you explain what other kind of research studies are being done that may not be treatment focused? Uh, the biggest ones that we have, uh, the, if they're not a specific treatment, and to be clear, treatments can be a new drug or they can be a new therapy. They could be a new device. Uh, so what we call those, those are called intervention trials, meaning that the study team is introducing something new to the patient and we want to know either how safe it is or how does it work. Um, aside from intervention trials, uh, there's probably two major categories. Uh, one is called a natural history study. Uh, or observational study. And these are the type of studies where we need to find out more about the disorder or the disease itself before we can move into treatment uh, ideas. Uh, this is particularly important for rare epilepsies and uh, genetic disorders where numbers are relatively few. And there may be unique aspects about, in this case, epilepsy in individuals with that specific condition that's different from general epilepsy. So those are what we call observational studies for natural history. And they identify when and how and uh, we should potentially design a future study to intervene uh, with a potential treatment or device. The second type of non-interventional study are where we're evaluating a diagnostic um, uh, method. Uh, this could be like a blood test that we've not used before. We want to know how good this blood test works. Uh, it could be looking at MRIs for clues about how to use MRIs better to make other decisions related to a patient's treatment or to understand uh, the disease better uh, mechanistically. Uh, so those are really how I, I divide the trials into either interventional or non-interventional, and they all have immense value. If we, if we don't do the earlier studies without treatments, then the treatment trials don't come later. So let's focus for a moment just on the intervention or um, the intervention treatment studies that you were talking about before. I have to imagine that most of the people who are signing up for a study of that nature are still actively having seizures. Um, otherwise, they probably wouldn't be interested in going into these studies. So they're probably already on medications. Are they expected to come off of those medications in order to participate in the study? Uh, you know, what is expected of them treatment-wise? Um, it depends on the study. Uh, most studies will be designed so that you stay on your current treatments and that we uh, ask you as much as possible during a portion of the study uh, to not change those and not to have your other doctors change those. Uh, that's not always possible, or some studies uh, are designed to allow changes to occur, but that should be clarified up front as you're being, the study's being explained to you. Uh, the reason for that is that we need to know whether the new treatment or intervention is what it's doing on its own. Uh, but, but for most studies, we don't have to have you change medications. The one thing to be aware of is that eligibility requirements for some studies will require you to be on or off certain medications as, as the study is designed. And, and so there could be a situation where you're interested in the study, you find out more about it, and you find out that a particular medication is not allowed in patients who want to participate in that trial. Uh, and so you work with your clinical doctors to uh, change it so you're no longer on that medication. And then you go through a, an observation time period that can be as short as a week. It sometimes can be as long as six months uh, uh, that uh, you're not on that uh, uh, medication that has been specified as non-compatible for the study. 
And in which case, then you can enroll in the study at that point. But most of the time, you should just think that whatever I'm on going into the study, I will stay on at least for a period of time. So I imagine that it becomes incredibly crucial to, you know, if you're going into a study, if you are, um, you know, adding a new drug to your regimen, this is clearly something that you should be speaking about with your, uh, with your neurologist or epileptologist. Absolutely, absolutely. And also, I, th I would think that they're a trusted source for you to know whether or not the trial, if they've heard of it, what they know about it or what they think about it. I think it, uh, both making sure that it's safe for you to do so, um, to have their support, I think is, is, is pretty important. Now, what happens, heaven forbid, if there is, you, you know, you uh, have an adverse reaction to the treatment that is being tested? The first step is always to contact the study team, and they will give you that information from the first day that you enroll, saying, hey, if you have any questions or concerns about the medicine, if you have any uh, adverse events, uh, you can call uh, this person and let them know what's, what's going on. So they may be give you some instructions that if it's not worrisome or pretty mild or just something you know, they may ask you just to record it in some sort of diary or, or recording app on a phone. And then they will talk to you more about it, uh, either by contacting you uh, directly or by waiting to your next visit and review, reviewing all of your notes uh, from what may have happened. It really depends on the type of adverse event and the type of study on whether they want instant uh, feedback on any concerns or whether you can hold on to those and share them later. So always contact your study team if there's an adverse event that you're either not expecting or is concerning to you. Now, let's say, you know, a, a drug goes through trial and it doesn't get approved, but it helped a handful of patients. Are those patients still able to access that drug? Only under very uh, limited circumstances. Uh, so if uh, a particular trial is unsuccessful, but the uh, company that is working on getting that uh, drug approved by the FDA has other protocols open, or they have a strategy in which they plan to continue investigation of that drug uh, in similar patients, but with a slightly different trial design, it's possible that the FDA may give them permission to do what we call an open label, uh, compassionate use uh, type uh, access to a drug. Um, that does require uh, approval from the FDA, and it does require approval from the managing IRB for that study. So there are people that are making sure that this is not used inappropriately as a mechanism to give people access to a drug that the FDA has not approved. Okay. So, you know, the, the study is concluded and do, are the final results and the findings, are they shared with the participants of the study? Do they get to see what they were a part of? Um, it really depends on the study design and the study team, but that should be disclosed to you up front um, on whether you would have that information or not. I participate in trials uh, with, with all of the above. So some of those trials, uh, either the design or because of legal and financial uh, uh, considerations, that the trial data is not available to the patients in any way, shape, or form other than what's publicly available. That said, um, I can tell you in the trials that I try to design, if there is a justification and reason to share those results with the family, um, then we do so. Uh, for example, if we have a study that's collecting genetic information, but the study is not a genetic study, we just have that so we know how to know how to apply the results to them. 
uh, we will often share the genetic results if those were obtained during the study because it doesn't influence the results at all and that's useful to the family. So the important message here is know that sometimes there's very legitimate reasons why you can't have that information, uh, but you should ask up front if and what could be shared with you during the study or when the study is done. So let's say you have a child with a rare disease and you cannot find any studies available for your child um, or for yourself, um, or you don't actually have a diagnosis, which was the case, which was the case with our daughter is that we didn't have a genetic diagnosis. She didn't have a, a sort of slot that she could fit in um, for a lot of trials. What are the options out there for these patients and their families? Sometimes there are studies that don't require you to have a definitive diagnosis if the studies are designed around your situation or your own symptoms. So there are studies that look for just seizure types um, that aren't dependent on a specific confirmation of, of the type of epilepsy you have as from a genetic standpoint or a syndrome standpoint. Uh, so, so look for those type of studies that are designed around symptoms that you might qualify for that don't require a very a specific diagnosis. The second, particularly for rare diseases, is to look for studies that maybe uh, provide that opportunity to get to a diagnosis. Um, uh, there's uh, these undiagnosed diseases network studies uh, that the NIH has sponsored for multiple years. Uh, that that's and many uh, large epilepsy institutions may have even their own institutional versions of this type of study that could maybe offer a route towards getting to a specific diagnosis. But even then, that still will be an unmet need for somebody who has a particularly rare diagnosis for which there are no studies. Um, in which case, I find it useful for to start to do searches um, and, and put on uh, your kind of your, uh, your internet savvy shoes to try to find a like mind. Um, and that like mind may come through patient organizations, Epilepsy Foundation, um, uh, Infantile Spasms, uh, uh, advocacy groups uh, oftentimes are dealing with this very scenario, and they may know of uh, either individual researchers that would take interest in your in your situation, um, and or uh, I know that we are working on a clinical trial design for for a disorder that we thought there were only about twenty individuals in the entire world, and then when we started working with the first family, uh, they formed a Facebook group, and lo and behold, we're up to somewhere around fifty. And we're working on the trial design uh, for them in that scenario. And it all started with uh, that family coming to our center and asking these type of questions to us. And we started, uh, you know, saying, OK, yeah, maybe there's no trial right now, but what would it take and what would we be able to do in a trial that would be of, of direct interest to you? Now, sometimes there isn't that the, the science isn't far enough along. We can do that. But that's where I would start the conversation, because if there's not a, if we don't have that information, then how do we get to that, that stage where we can get that information? I want to end on that incredibly powerful point that um, that patients and their families that we hold so much power in terms of, you know, advocating for ourselves and advocate advocating for research to be done that that we need. And, you know, that research doesn't happen unless we're willing to take the time and volunteer and be a part of these studies that are pushing science forward. What are your words of motivation or your thoughts to, you know, for a family or individual that might be on the fence and isn't sure about whether they, they feel comfortable participating in a trial? What, you know, why is it so important? 
it's all it's hard for me to really top what you just said. Um, know that every effort starts with one. Um, our clinic here that we deal with a rare uh, disease that has high rates of epilepsy called tuber sclerosis complex or TSC started when one family asked uh, my predecessor, uh, would you start a clinic for TSC patients at, at, at your hospital? And he said, sure. And, and now we've grown that into a very, very uh, significant research program for patients with tuber sclerosis. Um, that's how uh, we've started uh, with our Smith-Kingsmore Syndrome Foundation. Um, like I said, it started with a family uh, who just said, can you guys do this? And if, and if we bring the families or we talk to the families, you know, are, will you guys work with us? So it, the power is immense there. The other thing about starting clinical trials is that while we all want that clinical trial to help me right now, um, that, you know, some of these studies, we need pioneers uh, where, where maybe we can't do everything that we would want to do, but we won't get there for future generations uh, and future parents that are dealing with these same issues uh, without uh, people taking that first step now. So it can be daunting. It can be nerve wracking um, about whether you should or shouldn't participate in clinical trial. But if you're at all inclined, uh, to, to do so. And the, and any concerns that you might have can be addressed, um, uh, then you should really do that and know that every individual, whether you're the first person uh, to start this process off, or you're the first person for this new study, or this is first for you, um, all of it has immense value and it's the only way we move forward. Dr. Kruger, thank you so, so much for sharing this vital information and I really hope it encourages people to hunt down those trials that make sense for them or for their loved one. I just I appreciate you so much, the research that you do and the care that you provide for our community. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Dr. Kruger, for your insights on participating in clinical trials. As Dr. Kruger emphasized, epilepsy patients have a crucial role to play in developing new treatments. Researchers cannot make discoveries and create new medications without the participation of patients and families impacted by epilepsy. The mothers who founded Cure Epilepsy knew this, and for over 20 years, Cure Epilepsy has supported patient-focused epilepsy research by raising over $70 million to fund more than 240 research grants in 15 countries. There have been wonderful advances in understanding and developing new therapies, but we won't stop until we realize our goal, a world without epilepsy. To help us achieve this goal, please visit cureepilepsy.org forward slash donate. Your support and generosity are greatly appreciated. Thank you. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CURE. The information contained herein is provided for general information only and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. CURE strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical condition be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual's specific health situation.